You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Uh, for the guests that we have with us today, very glad that you're here uh, worshiping with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Ant, pastor here at uh, Midtown Two Notch. Again, very glad that you uh, are here. So we're doing a little bit of switch from what we have been doing um, bef- uh, two weeks ago, uh, before our, our baptism celebration Sunday that we had last week. And we are going to be starting this week, beginning our Give series. This is an annual series that we do. Uh, it's kind of the way that we do Advent, as we anticipate, or I should say celebrate, the coming of our Lord Jesus when he came to us as a baby. I want to go ahead and put my cards on the table and let you know what I, what I want to try to accomplish today, hopefully with the sermon. Uh, we do what we call Serve the City in our family of churches here at Midtown Fellowship, where we pick a few different ministries or organizations in the city that are serving some of the more vulnerable people in our city. And we seek to partner with them really all throughout the year. But in January, you'll, you'll get more info about this a little bit later. In January, we're going to have what we call Serve the City Weekend, where we're going to be partnering with all of these uh, organizations and ministries that we'll be partnering with for the sake of helping them to continue to do the work that God is calling them to do. So I just wanted to let you know what our Serve the City partners are up front before we get into the word for today. So we partner with Palmetto Health Children's Hospital. Palmetto Health, Palmetto Health Children's Hospital serving the patients and families who are hospitalized and experiencing ongoing medical treatment. Uh, one of the things that we uh, specialize or focus on with the Palmetto Health Children's Hospital is uh, parents and families who have a, a child who is experiencing or dealing with cancer, I should say. So we've done uh, special partnerships with them, everything from throwing parties for the children to coming alongside the parents, to coming alongside the staff and encouraging them as they are serving these uh, families who are just going through this extremely, extremely difficult times. We partner with uh, Transitions as well. Uh, transi- transition serves residents who find themselves in a homeless uh, situation. So people who are, who are homeless and are looking to transition out of a homeless situation, uh, Transitions is a, is a very good organization that works with them, and we always want to come alongside them. HomeWorks for America uh, serves the poor, widowed, and elderly in our community with home repairs that they are unable to accomplish on our own. We have a lot of people in our community with, whether it be disability or because they're, they're elderly, or whatever the reason is, aren't able to make the repairs that they need for their home. HomeWorks for America serves them, and we come alongside HomeWorks and, and partner with them at various times throughout the year. The same thing for the Ezekiel Center. I know many of you have served with the Ezekiel Center before, uh, serving at-risk youth by providing help in education and family literacy and also work experience. Uh, and so that's, again, one of the ones that we've been partnering with, especially at Midtown Two Notch, really since the day we became a church. I feel like we've been partnering with them in a variety of ways. Uh, DSS, specifically serving clients, families, children, and foster parents who are in foster care and adoption systems, adoption systems. So uh, that's one that's very uh, important to us, as we'll look at in the, uh, in the message that we'll get into today. Serving the fatherless, serving orphans, uh, if you would, is something that, that God talks about himself doing and calls us to do as well. Same thing for Epworth Children's Home, uh, serving residents. These are kids who have t- temporarily or permanently been removed from their homes. So these are uh, orphans in, in the most literal sense who have been removed from their homes. They, they come to Epworth, and so we want to come alongside them. We don't uh, necessarily believe in trying to re- reinvent the will. If there are already organizations and ministries in our city that are already doing a great job of serving uh, different people who are in very vulnerable situations, uh, very downtrodden people, 
then we want to be able to come alongside them as much as we can. So part of what I want to do with this sermon is I want all of, I want to encourage everyone in the room uh, to volunteer to sign up during, during Serve the City weekend, which is going to be in January of next year. Again, January of next year, uh, we, we're going to have a, a variety of opportunities for you to partner with some of these organizations that we have listed here. And we want everyone, if at all possible, to volunteer at least once in that weekend, as we have our family of churches, Midtown Two Notch, Midtown Lexington, and Midtown Downtown coming together to serve our city. So that's what I'm about. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 if you've got a Bible with you. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Ever since uh, Midtown Two Notch was started, I, really I should say before we got started, there's been a desire in us to be near the lowly to care about those who, who are in, for whatever reason, less fortunate situations, those who are, who are struggling, those who are having difficult times. This, this is not just something that we want to do this time of year. This is something that we want to always be about as a church. But this year uh, is, is to provide some extra, oh, this time of the year, I should say, is to provide some extra encouragement for us as a church family to continue to push in towards that. We, we look at Christmas and we consider it the, the, the greatest act of, of generosity, Jesus coming to save us. God gives us himself. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just give us material things. He comes and gives us himself so that we might be saved. So we feel like the only appropriate response to that is for us to be generous as well. Right? We want to push back against what, what we generally see in our culture, what we generally see in society, is as a response to Jesus coming and giving himself, let me focus on all the gifts that I am getting, or maybe my family is getting, or maybe my people are getting, and it turns in this, into this very commercialized holiday. And we want to, as a church, say this time of year, what have, what have we focused more on? More than we focus on ourselves, more than we focus on giving, not only to those that, that we know that we have personal relationships with, but even those that we do not know that are in less fortunate situations than us. Every year as we celebrate Jesus abandoning the riches of heaven to come live as a man, and we, we see this divine generosity, we want to respond with sacrificial generosity on our own. In a second, we're going to start at verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, give you a little bit of context. God is, is telling his people what it looks like to actually follow him. And he starts, by, starts doing that a little bit by uh, revealing who he is. So before we can get to verse 17, just to give you a, a little backdrop on a few verses before that, uh, he says to them, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord our God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then he tells them a few commandments and statues that they're to follow. And he tells them that part of following him is to no longer be stubborn and as a response or to tell them and instruct them on how to not be stubborn and how to actually follow him. Check out what he says in verse 17, Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He says he is greater than all. He said he needs nothing from anyone. He is self-sufficient. He rules over everyone and everything, which means he is the only one capable of being the ultimate leader that we all need because he has everything. He's in control of everything. That's the best possible news. That's the best possible news. Here's why. Oftentimes, Leaders in our world, not just now, but I'm talking going back even thousands of years, government officials, po politicians throughout our history have been manipulated because of a desire for power, money, and prestige. 
right? Leaders need money oftentimes to run their campaigns or to continue to, to be in the position that they are in. So oftentimes leaders will push for the desires of their supporters, their financial supporters that they're getting paid by because they're, they're to some degree controlled by those that have something that they don't have. Others have, maybe they have a level of power that they can give to them. Maybe they have some influence that they can give to him. Maybe, maybe they have money or prestige that they can give to him. But he's the God of all gods. He is the incorruptible one. Nobody can offer him anything that he does not already have. He cannot be manipulated by anyone. He is the king of kings. He, he is the Lord of lords. He is the great and the awesome one. The scripture says, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He's not able to be brought. He's not able to be manipulated. He's never in pursuit of something that he doesn't have, so no one can ever have any type of, of control over him. No one can ever manipulate him. As many leaders have been compromised, have compromised their values, maybe to, 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 to state the party line or do whatever this party wants them to do. This has been going on for thousands of years, but our God is the God of gods. Our Lord is the Lord of lords. He is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. You can't tempt him with money. He has infinite wealth and resources. You can't tempt him with power. He's the great and mighty. He's the awesome one. You can't tempt him with prestige. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? He has more majesty than anyone else. There are some who so crave the approval of others that they might be partial to those that, that are part of a certain group, a certain tribe, maybe a, a, a certain family because they desire the approval of, of that person or maybe of, of that group so they can be manipulated. They can be manipulated to, to, to be more partial or to, or to be more kind to a certain group of people over another different group of people. Our God does not have any lust for our approval. He, he, he is not changing who he is to grab our approval. Quite the opposite, actually. We, we, we should be after his approval. Right? We, we don't bend. He doesn't bend himself so that, we, so that he might gain our approval. Rather, we should bend ourselves around what he desires, what, what he wants, what he is pleased with. He didn't create us out of some insecure need that he had to, to feel love, right? He, he, he didn't create us because he was lacking something. No, he's completely sufficient in and of himself, eternally content in the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't need our approval. Quite the opposite. We need his approval. He is the incorruptible one. He is unable to be manipulated. And thus, he is the only one truly worthy of us following with everything that we have. There's a hymn that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Not only is it that we can't offer him anything to change him, we can't offer him anything to make him approve of us more or be more partial to him. It's quite the opposite. Actually, the way that, that, that we receive his blessing is by coming him, realizing that we can't offer him anything at all. That, that, that we contribute absolutely nothing even to our own salvation. We come to him with, with empty hands because he has all. He has no need of anything from us. He is the incorruptible one. He is the one worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship, worthy to be our leader in this life and on into the next. 
He is the one that does not bless people based off of what they can do for him. Instead, he offers his gift of salvation to those who realize that they can't do anything to save themselves. He can't be bought. He can't be tempted. He can't be corrupted. He doesn't give preferential treatment to those who can do something for him. And that allows him to do this. Verse 18. So he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This verse speaks of God's mercy. Mercy in the Bible can also be translated compassion. Mercy is it's an aspect of love. It's, it's when you so love someone, when you're so united with someone that when they hurt, you hurt. It's when you so care for someone that when they, when they rejoice, you rejoice. When, the, when they are in pain, it's as if you yourself are in pain because you so identify with and love that person. Psalms 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the merciful one. As we just read in verse 18, so he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. I want to point out something that, that is everywhere in here today. I've probably pointed it out a bunch of times. I, I found a, a Facebook post that really made the point for me, I feel like, that I, that I want to make, is it, that is common in our day today. I read a Facebook post last Sunday, a week ago today, that said this. My circle only includes entrepreneurs, thinkers, hard workers, influencers, present or future millionaires, innovators, revolutionaries, People who have straightforward, thought-provoking conversations, those who refuse to be like everyone else, those who already know who, sorry, those who already know or are in pursuit of their God-given purpose, those who know how to speak with and to multiple generations. It went on to say, I refuse to hang around just anybody. Family, aren't we grateful that God chooses to hang around just anybody? Aren't we grateful that he doesn't have a list where he says, the ones that I am around, the ones that I connect with, the ones that I pursue and initiate with, the ones that I identify with, have to meet this certain standard. Aren't we glad that our God doesn't doesn't choose his circle that way? That's not how he determines his relationship with us. He doesn't have this checklist, right? He's not Santa Claus checking off to see who's, who's been good and who hasn't. And if you think about it, he has more of a right to do this than anybody else. If anybody has a right to say, hey, you meet this standard or I can't be with you, it's him. In fact, that would be the fair and just and righteous thing for him to do because he is sinless. But he is the one who came to us in our sin because we would have never met the list, no matter how hard we tried. And he came to us, the ordinary. More than that, the weak, the lowly, the downtrodden, the fatherless the widows, the sojourners, the broken and the needy because he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. At this time, the orphans, widows, and sojourners are the most needy and vulnerable people in the society. It was in a society where if you didn't own land, and generally speaking, the men in the home were the ones that, that owned land. If you didn't own land, you lacked so much power, you lacked so much protection. Right? This is very much so an agricultural society. Land gave you the ability to, to provide for yourself, to provide for your family. So when you talk about the, the, the fatherless, the orphan, 
the one who doesn't have a father, who didn't have anyone that, that passed down this land to them, this ability to succeed, this ability to provide, to provide, excuse me, he says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, the widow whose husband had passed away, who thus wasn't oftentimes able to own land, thus was, was very easily, very much able to be uh, taken advantage of in a variety of ways as he executes justice for the widow, the sojourner, someone who's just passing through, wasn't often seen as a, a citizen, didn't have the, the level of provision of being able to have land. They, they, they're not from there. They're, they're just moving through the area. People couldn't move through an area as quickly back then as they do now. There was very much traffic moving through uh, Canaan, the promised land, where God's people were at this time. They would have needed provision. They would have needed help oftentimes, especially if anything occurred that would have slowed down their travel. The fatherless, the widow, the the sojourner are those that just needed somebody to be nice to them. Are those who just needed somebody to look out for them. Those who needed someone in power to say, hey, I'm going to make sure you're good. I'm going to make sure you're okay. It says he executes justice for them because he is merciful and gracious. The incorruptible one, the one that can't take a, won't take a bribe, the one that you can't manipulate, the one that you can't tempt in any way because there's nothing you can offer him that he doesn't already have, he grants justice to the vulnerable. The one who has everything grants justice to those who have nothing, he says. He cares about the suffering of those that don't have high social status or prestige in this world. Many people get in positions of power, and their goal is to do what? To continue to move up in positions of power, which means you have to rub elbows with those who who maybe have more power than you do. But this is the one that, that has infinite power, that has infinite resources. And he says, the ones that catch my eye are the lowly, are the ones who are in need, are the downtrodden are the ones that need someone who has more power or influence than them to help them, to bless them. He's the all-powerful one. He has no need to become more powerful. He cares more about them than he cares about only seeking to serve himself. Continue on the beginning of verse 19. This is what he calls us to do as he calls us to join him and be like him. He says, so love the sojourner, therefore. The word therefore means in light of the way you see me loving, in light of the the way that I execute justice for the lowly, then you should love the sojourner. After showing them how merciful and compassionate that he is to those who are suffering, because if we can be honest, the leaders at that time weren't looking out for them. As he reveals that, that that's who he is to them, he commands them to follow his lead. He commands his people to love the sojourner. The sojourner, when I was in seminary, I was doing a, a class on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and the people of Israel at that time, and one thing that the, the professor continued to say in, in seminary was that the, the Jews at this time were very ethnocentric, very ethnocentric. I thought that was like, I've never heard anybody say that term, ethnocentric, before. What does that mean? I, I went and looked it up. It's the belief that one's own group or ethnicity is superior to others. The belief that one's own group or ethnicity is superior to others. So the sojourner, not only did they not own land, but they were looked down upon in the place that they were in. 
right? So this, this, this ethnocentrism, if you would, I believe is very much correlates highly with what we call racism today. In this area, in this time, in this place where that was oftentimes very much male-dominant, we see God saying that he is with the widow, a poor woman. In a society where family represents status and security, we see God standing with the orphan. In a society that is defined by these ethnic lines as Jews saw themselves, uh, they they made a, a, a word for everyone else. It's us and then it's Gentiles, which is everybody else, is the way they described it. He says he stands with the alien, the outsider, the one who is not highly esteemed in society. You see, he calls them to also love the oppressed to love the downtrodden, to love the vulnerable, to love those who the system as it is currently set up is not meant to help. See those that others don't see. Think about those that others don't think about. Care about those that others don't care about. Love those that others don't love and take care of those that others don't take care of. That's what he's calling them to do is he calls them to love the sojourner. As a people, as a society... I believe we tend to be more motivated to help people that have some type of potential to help us. We kind of function on this this kind of debt and repayment social system. You can see it in the way we celebrate Christmas. How many of y'all getting a gift for somebody y'all know ain't getting a gift for you? Don't raise your hand. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Am Am I lying? We generally get gifts for people that we know are getting something for us as well. And then sometimes we feel this pressure. It's like, oh, they're getting me something real nice, so I got to get them something real nice. That's not a gift. That's a trade. That's an exchange, right? You pretty much bought that gift that they gave you because you gave them something of the same price. This is the way we think about giving. This is the way that we think about generosity, that I will give you something if you will give me something in return. I would expect you to give me something. We feel obligated to give someone something when they give us something. That's how much we operate on a debt and repayment system. We feel like if somebody gets us something, we now have to get them something back. He is calling his people here to give to those who don't have anything to offer and will probably be back to ask for more. And next week, we'll probably need more. It's who he is calling them to love. They're called to mimic the mercy and compassion of God. The one who has infinite power and prestige and majesty, yet cares about the plight of those who have no social status at all. Love the sojourner, he says. Find the one that's looked down on. Find the one that doesn't really fit in. Find the one that the system isn't made to support. And love them. And love them. God is calling them out of their prejudice. He's calling them to to love those, not only that others look down on, but if you look at it, he's calling them to love those that they would have looked down on. He's calling them to be near those that they would have had some some, some presuppositions about or some ideas about who they were without actually knowing them well. This would have been a costly thing, a very demanding thing for them to do. Love people who don't have a home. For some of them, this likely meant loving somebody who doesn't have a home likely meant give them that room in your house. Let them be in that room in your house. How do you love somebody who doesn't have anywhere to stay? It's easy. 
It's very easy on social media to advocate for people who don't have much. Very easy. But what are we actually willing to sacrifice for those who don't have much? How do you love someone who, don't, who doesn't have anything? I'm not saying post on social media is wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it is easy compared to the most necessary work that needs to be done in giving justice to those who are overlooked. If God asked you to open up your home for someone who is struggling, would you do it? This command to love the sojourner is a risky command. It's very demanding. Very demanding. He knows how much this will cost. He knows how difficult this will be for them to do, to move past their prejudice, to sacrifice their, their own possessions, maybe even their own homes. He knows that this will be a very difficult thing for them to do. If any if you have been involved in, in, in continuing ongoingly serving those who are poor, maybe those who, who are homeless, it can be a very difficult thing to do. So he gives them a the much-needed reminder to encourage them to love the sojourners. Pick up back in verse 19. We'll read through verse 21. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. He has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. He starts that off by saying, he says, love the sojourner because you were a sojourner once in Egypt. You remember and this, is, this was written to them in Deuteronomy before they actually got into the promised land to tell them how they were to live when they were in the promised land. So this was probably 40, maybe 50 years at this point when this is being said from the time that they left Egypt. It wasn't that long ago. He tells them that they ought to remember that they were sojourners. As a father that has twin babies, or has twin boys, I should say, he had twin babies five years ago. Anytime I see a parent in a store, it can be anywhere. With twins, I just want to go to them, give them a hug, and tell them it's going to be okay. I just want to give them a hug and just be like, amen, this is going to be okay. You're going to make it. I promise you, you're going to make it. When I see pastors who are faithful, who are called by God to be pastors, they start to, to doubt. They start to feel insecure in their call. I'm quick to want to encourage them because I've been there before and I know what that feels like. About four times a year, my family, uh, me, my wife, and Malachi, one of my sons, we go up to Boston. Um, he's had 21 surgeries so far. We have his 22nd probably at the beginning of next year. And you see all these families who come to this hospital from all around the country, even from all around the world, as it's one of the best children's hospitals, arguably in the world. And there's this ongoing compassion and, and even love that you'll see from absolute strangers who have never met each other before, but know what it's like to have a sick kid, to have a kid with a chronic condition. What am I saying? It's so much easier to love people when you identify with them. There's a natural tendency for us to love people when we identify with the struggle that we see them currently going through. When you identify with the difficulty, when you identify with the pain, when you identify with the situation that they're currently dealing with, your heart just goes out to them. It's much easier for you to love them. So God reminds them, he says, hey, remember you were sojourners in Egypt. You remember what that felt like? Do you remember what that was like for you? Love 
the sojourner. In Egypt, the people of God were in a kingdom where they were foreigners. They were outsiders. They were oppressed. They were downtrodden. He's like, you remember what it's like to be in a land that's not your own? You remember what it's like to be marginalized? You remember what it's like to be oppressed? You know what that is like. So now you should love the marginalized. You should love the downtrodden, the lowly that are in this system that does not look out for them. God is saying, you know what that was like. And I came to you and through mighty and powerful and fearful acts and terrifying miracles, I rescued you from that. I freed you from the land that you were foreign. I executed justice for you when you were a sojourner. And now I need you to remember what that was like and identify with the lowly where you are and not distance yourself from them. They needed this reminder of their condition before they were saved. If they were going to give their lives to the sojourner, they needed to remember what that was like and that someone who was more powerful than them came to them and saved them and rescued them. And we today as Christians need the same reminder. We need the same reminder. Before coming to know Jesus, we were all in what the Bible refers to as the kingdom of darkness, this kingdom where we were enslaved to sin. Well, we were controlled and dominated by sin. Let's be very clear. The the biggest oppressor in the Bible is sin itself. It enslaves all of mankind ever since Genesis chapter 3. And the story of the gospel is that God comes into us, rescues us out of this kingdom of darkness where we were spiritual orphans, saved us into his kingdom, and became our father. See, as Christians, we all, when we think about it, know what it's like to be oppressed. If you remember what your life was like before coming to know Jesus, if you remember even your struggle right now to have this power of sin that is in your life that you're trying to fight against but you cannot beat on your own and thus you need something or someone stronger than you to come and rescue you, we need the same reminder that the children of Israel had and needed. We need to remember, we, no, you were, if you were a Christian, you were rescued from an oppressive kingdom that you were in and brought into the kingdom of his son the kingdom of heaven. We know what it's like to be outsiders. We were once outsiders in the kingdom of heaven. There was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to get into the kingdom of heaven. We needed someone who was already there to make the sacrifice necessary that we might come into his kingdom. We were outsiders. We were spiritual orphans, fatherless spiritually. We we needed God the Father to come and adopt us into his family. We were a part of a kingdom that was never meant to be our, our ultimate home. We were a part of a kingdom that was not created ultimately for us. We needed someone to, to rescue us from there and take us to a new kingdom. We need the same reminder that the Israelites needed. Duke Kwan has a quote I didn't put it on the screen like I should have. It says, He says, one of the unique characteristics of the God of the Bible, indeed, it sets him apart from the deity of every other religious system. It's his relentless identification with the powerless, the vulnerable and abused. This should be the distinguishing mark of his covenant people also. That if our God is the merciful ones, then we sh- if, if our God is the merciful one, then we should be the merciful ones. 
If our God is the compassionate one, then we should be the compassionate ones. If our God, who was as high as heaven, was in paradise in heaven, would come down to us to be near the lowly, then we should sacrifice whatever we have to sacrifice to be near those who are lowly as well and love them. If that is who we actually follow, if that is who we follow, in the Christmas holiday, what we're celebrating, that Jesus came down and became a man, in my opinion, is as great as any other miracle that I can see in the Bible. That God himself, and I, I, need, you to, I need you to picture this. You might have to close your eyes on this one. So I did a little bit of research. National Geographic says that in our universe, in our universe, there are, there's an estimated 100 billion galaxies. Estimated 100 billion galaxies. And it's estimated in each of those galaxies, there's about 100 billion stars. In each of those 100 billion galaxies, I don't know enough math to give you that number. Pull out Google or something, right? 100 billion times 100 billion. This is what our God has created in, in this universe. Comparatively speaking, our, our, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, isn't extremely big. Our solar system, there's nothing extra special about it in and of himself. But the miracle of Christmas is that God looks into our galaxy, looks into our solar system, looks all the way down to this small-ish planet called Earth and says, I am going to become one of them. The God who created 100 billion stars and the 100 billion galaxies says, I'm going to descend from my throne to enter this small, comparatively speaking, planet, and I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to become a man. I'm going, I'm going to identify with those so much less powerful than I am. All the while doing so, I'm going to be continuing to hold the universe together and continue to give light and power and, and resource to every star in this universe that I created. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. I'll just read part of it. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. The one who has a name for every of the 100 billion stars and all the 100 billion galaxies steps down from the throne of heaven and says, I'll become one of them to save them. The incarnation of Jesus is as great of a miracle as I can understand in all of the Bible. And not just coming down, not, not just compassionately abandoning paradise to come live in this broken world, but to, to more so affiliate with and connect with and identify with the lowly when he puts on flesh. He doesn't come as a king that's riding on chairs. He comes as a baby. He puts flesh on him, but he puts the weakest form of flesh on himself that, that, can, that he could possibly be in. And even before he became a baby, even before, I should say, before he was born, even before he was born, he was inside of his mind with eyes. The one who created light was, was bearing eyes that could not bear to see light. As he descended for us, our God associates with, affiliates with, connects himself with, and understands the lowly and the weak. He identifies with the lowly and with the weak. Not only was he born in this way, but he is also able to identify with the downtrodden, with the, with the oppressed, with those who are, who are vulnerable and often taken advantage of because he was born into oppression. 
He was born to a working-class Jewish family who, who at his birth, and here, this is something that's very important. We cannot over-romanticize the Christmas story because if you do, you miss the fact that it's a story about a God coming into, stepping into oppression to free the oppressed from their oppression. The Christmas story, Jesus was born, I don't want us to be, uh, to be mistaken because of what we see in the nativity scenes. Those wise men that came to Jesus came because Herod was trying to find Jesus so that he might kill them. They tricked him and went back another way. And then, hear this, he sent his army into a small town of Bethlehem and slaughtered every male child under the age of three to try to kill Jesus. He was born into oppression. His family had to flee as refugees to Egypt. His family had to become sojourners. His family had to become immigrants in a different place because the story of Christmas is a God who looked down into this broken world, seeing so many weak in the kingdom of darkness, dominated and enslaved by sin, many of which have been oppressed throughout the the centuries and the thousands of years in this world. He steps into it and experiences that very oppression firsthand. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he steps into the darkness. He and his family, as he, as he is weak, he is, he's only two years old, Max, and his family has to run away for their lives, or at least to save his life from King Herod. King Herod was, was threatened by the prophecy that Jesus would become king of the Jews. Herod was the king over that land at the time. He was reigning in that area. He heard of another king who was going to come. He was threatened, so he said, Jesus must die. Don't over-romanticize this story and miss the, the beauty that he is coming to the lowly as one who is lowly, even though he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and hung all the stars and knows them all by name. Not only was he born in, into oppression, he also lived in oppression throughout his life. At this point, the Jewish people were very harshly oppressed by the Roman Empire for the, for the entirety of Jesus' life on the earth. If you read the Gospels, I hope you don't miss it. There are centurions and soldiers that are just stationed in the streets. There are soldiers that they are just stationed there making sure no one, none of, none of God's people, none of the Israelites rebelled against the Roman Empire. Not only was he born in oppression, not only did he live under oppression, but he died under oppression as well. His whole trial, his whole execution, it was unjust. It was, it was oppressive. It, he had done nothing wrong. He had never sinned against anybody, but the leadership of that day was, was hurling lies at him over and over again. He was beaten with rods. He was scourged with a whip. The king of kings became an outcast. He was lied on. He was spit on. He was beaten with rods. The creator of all was marginalized by the very ones he created. The Most High was downtrodden by the men whose lives he was sustaining at that very moment. He gave Pilate the breath to state that he could be executed. He died under oppression and he allowed it because he identifies with the weak. He identifies with the lowly. If anybody could have ever just like, you know what, I don't want to get into the messiness of these people. I don't want to deal with the problems and the hurt of these people. It could have been him. And and he would not have been wrong. But not our Savior. But not our God. No, no, he he doesn't stay back in in the comforts. He didn't say, well, if I go over there where the crime rate's kind of high, so I might get hurt. 
oh, if I go over there, is it, that's not really safe, is it, for me to go over there? So I'll just stay here. God wouldn't want me to get hurt, would he? But we follow a Savior that was born into oppression, lived in oppression, and orchestrated his own crucifixion as he saved the oppressed from their oppression. And not only did he die under oppression, but you know the rest of the story. He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven to free us from oppression forever, to sin and to any other governmental system. The, the, uh, the, the prophecy in, in, in Isaiah says that he is the prince of peace and that the government will be on his shoulders, saying that he's coming back. He's going to be the prince, or you could interpret he's going to be the king. He's the one that's going to reign. The government is going to be on his shoulders, and of his peace, there will be no end. That He's going to establish his kingdom. First, he's going to execute justice for everybody who's ever been downtrodden, and everyone who's ever been oppressed, and everyone who's ever been stepped on, and everyone who was not loved as he has called us to love people. He's going to execute justice. There will be no sin committed against the oppressed that will go unpunished. That's number one. And then he is going to rescue all of his people. And so many who have experienced oppression, so many who have been made low in society will reign with him forever. This is our God who executes justice for the orphan, for the widow, and for the sojourner. And he calls us as his people to follow him. Because, yes, he's coming back to make all things right. But in the meantime, in the meantime, right now, he calls us to be near the lowly. He calls us to be there for those who are in need, to be there for those who we can bless in some way for the outcast, for the marginalized. So we have a decision to make. As a church, as Midtown Two Notch, are we going to be like our Savior, to be near the vulnerable, to be near the orphans and the widows and the sojourners of our day? Is the church, the collective people of God, going to love the poor who are around us, or will we abandon the ways of our Savior? Those are our only two options. We will be near those who are outcasts in our society, or we abandon the ways of our Savior. So as a church, as a family of churches, one of the things we do specifically at Two Notch that to try to be near those who are vulnerable is the prayer walks that we do. To be near, to, to, to demonstrate the love of God through building relationships, through prayer, through sharing the good news of Jesus. We do this through our Serve the City partnerships which I talked about a little bit earlier, we'll be doing Serve the City weekend in January where all of us will have the opportunity, hopefully, to serve some who are in need around us and just through our everyday lives. Outside, oftentimes when it comes to this, this type of thing, I feel like everyone waits for the church to organize something that we all can do. Everyone passively, oftentimes passively, waits and sits back and it's like, well, yeah, when, when our church does something, then yeah, I definitely do that. And that's great. And we want you to, to come out and support when the church is doing something. But do we have the same initiative that our Savior has? That our love motivates us? That it's not just about someone putting together a program for us, but we, can, we commit to consistently being there for the orphans, widows, and sojourners of our day. The night that Jesus was taken away as he was having his last meal with his disciples, he took bread, he broke it, he took the, the wine, he poured it, he passed it around to them. He said, do this in remembrance of me. 
He, he instituted communion, and he, he said, do this, pay, take part in this, participate in this in remembrance of me. We're going to take part in communion in just a few minutes. And I want to encourage us to remember how close he was to the widows, to the orphans, to the sojourners, how, how close he was to, to us when we were in need, that the broken body of Jesus, that the shared blood of Jesus will be a reminder to us that he didn't just sit in this comfortable place, but he came to us when we were in need. My prayer is that as we remember this, that we remember how he saw us in our weakness, saw us in our spiritual poverty, saw us in our spiritual oppression, that we remember that he identifies with and serves and uplifts the weak, that there will be an encouragement to us to continue to do the same. Let me pray for us, fam. Father, we're grateful for you. God, where would we be if you would have just stayed where you were? If you wouldn't have been so merciful and compassionate to us, Father, where would we be? Father, as we celebrate this, this, this time of year, which is appropriate for us to celebrate you coming, would you help us to see, would you help us to remember that you came for us when we were weak, that you descended from heaven, that you stepped down from the throne and came to earth, that you stepped down from eternal paradise and stepped into this, this broken world that we broke, that we messed up, that we corrupted to save us, to rescue us when we were in need. Father, please make us a church that loves those who are in need around us. Make us a church who is merciful. Make us a church who, who so loves, even those that we do not know, that we hurt with those who are hurting, that we aren't able to see the, 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 the widows, the orphans, the, the sojourners of our day and, and go on unfazed by their plight. Would you cause us to love the way that you love? Would you cause us to care the way that you care? Would you call us to be present as you are present with us every day of our lives, Father? Will you change us? Will you convict our hearts? Will you transform us, Lord? Would you bring us to a sweet place of repentance, of joyful repentance, of letting go of whatever might be keeping us from following you as the merciful one? Would you give us joyful oftentimes difficult, sacrificial surrender to you and your will for us. Father, as we partake in communion today, would you help us to remember you, remember your sacrifice, remember what you sacrificed for us when you came in the form of a baby, that you might save us. It's in Christ's name I pray.